Amen. All right, let's go Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we'll have the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. Uh, we also have some physical Bibles scattered around the room, the little racks beneath the seats. If you don't own a Bible, we would invite you to take one of those physical ones home. Uh, the reason for that is incredibly simple. Uh, we believe that God uses his word for all kinds of incredibly important things, but chief among those important things is that he uses it to reveal himself to his people. We, we like as a church, like the mission of this church, what we are about, the reason why we exist is that we want you to know God. Uh, we want you to, to know him, to have your life shaped around knowing him, to see the world through knowing him. And so if the Bible, the scriptures, his word or is the tool that he's going to use to get you there, then man, we want to put a Bible in your hands if you don't have one. Um, and so take that physical one home, start reading it. It'll be the biggest week of, uh, biggest win of my week, I promise. Um, so we are in the last couple of months now in a series that we've been working on, uh, working through on and off since uh, about Easter. Uh, we've been calling it Just and Justifier. The artwork's up on the screen there. Uh, it's got this kind of uh, coliseum. I, I pick on Garrett every once in a while because like of, out of all of the th buildings that you think about when it comes to Rome, the coliseum wasn't built yet when Paul wrote this letter. Like, so... Like, the, like all these other things we could put on there, but we went with the Colosseum because it's just like, when you think Rome, you think Colosseum, right? No, um, but that's the artwork. Uh, we've been working on this since Easter now. Uh, and so Romans is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church at the city, uh, in the city of Rome. Uh, and uh, it's, it, that's how, kind of how it got its name. Like Romans isn't a complicated name. It's to the church at Rome. And we think that, that Paul wrote this letter about 56 A.D., all right, 56 AD, and he writes it to this church uh, as basically, essentially, a missionary support letter. He wants to go to Spain. He believes that God is calling him to take the gospel to Spain. He's going to evangelize, plant churches, do all the things that come with missions, all right, and so he sees the Roman church as an ally to help him get there. He's in Corinth when he's writing this letter, we believe, all right, and he's, Rome is to the west of him. Spain's on farther west than that, and so he sees Rome as a great strategic pit stop to pick up supplies, pick up people, and pick up this renewed mission, all right? And so he writes this letter to the Roman church to ask for that help. But instead of just like saying, hey, can you spot me a few dollars and I'll promise to bring you a souvenir on my way back, he instead, man, he casts high vision, a high vision for what God is doing and Paul crafts this masterpiece, logical argument for the global need of the gospel and why God is raising up him and others like him to take that gospel to the nations. And man, that, that need, it is truly global. Truly global. The, the first couple of chapters of the book of Romans, they're dedicated to making it explicitly clear that all men are without excuse and are separated from God because of sin. There's no, there's no sliding scale here. All men, all peoples are, they, they stand condemned. And after that, Paul moves on to, to proving that, that the thing that is properly earned for that sin is death. The Bible calls it God's wrath. Sometimes it calls it hell. We also learn that a holy and just God will not fail, will never fail in his responsibility to act justly and to give sinners exactly what they deserve. And so that means, if you put the pieces together and do the math, that means that all peoples, without exception, rightly deserve the wrath of God. The doctrine of hell might be a hard pill to swallow, but that doesn't make it any less true. It's what is owed to me. 
The need truly is global, but church, the gospel is also truly good. Truly good. Uh, Paul tells us that, that, that the one who is perfectly just is also at the very same time the great justifier. He declares guilty people to be innocent. He makes a way where there was no way. Not, be, not because he's discovered something in us that deserves to be saved, that ought to be saved, that requires him to act in some kind of way. The hand of God can never be forced, ever. He's God, that, therefore he's above forcing. The hand of God can never be forced. Nor is it because he so suddenly woke up one day and kind of, like, just came to his senses and decided, I should turn this thing off. That's not what happened either. No, an infinitely holy God chose. And that's the correct word. He, he is God, therefore he above any other person has the right to choose. He chose based upon no, nothing in us, but upon the riches of his mercy and the forever expansion of his glory. He chose to extend grace to some instead of giving them the wrath that they deserved. And on the surface, that, on the surface, that sounds like an unjust thing to do. Not in the some part, but in the any at all part. In the any at all part. Like, pe people who deserve punishment are getting something else. That, that's pretty much a textbook definition of a failure of justice. And this is where the cross of Jesus comes into play. The Son of God, he put on flesh and he lived a sinless life among us, which means that he did not deserve to die. Death, what, death wasn't owed to him like it's owed to, to you and me. But he came and he lived and he died sacrificially to pay the, the debt of sin that you owe. And so now he calls on you to respond to him in faith. That's, that's the call. God's people don't ever, ne have never, and will never stand on their own righteousness, but upon the righteousness of Jesus gifted to them by grace through faith. The need is truly global, but the church, <laughs> the, church the gospel is also truly, truly good. It's good. And so, and so last week, last week, we began to make the pivot from eternal truths declared to responses acted upon. We shifted from indicative to imperatives, right? And we said last week that our response to Jesus' work is a whole life affair. That, that the natural and reasonable and logical and spiritual response to the massive thing that Jesus has done for us is to offer our whole selves as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. And so, we also said last week that Paul is going to begin unfolding some incredibly practical, down-to-earth, ground-level responses for what this looks like. We also said that, that none of those things would make any sense without the primary work of refusing to be conformed to the pattern of this world, but instead being transformed by the renewal of your mind. And so true to promise... True to promise, we're going to end the air campaign and start the ground campaign over the next several weeks. We're going to look at what this looks like, this practical living out an act of worship. We're going to see what this looks like on the, the ground level. And, and sometimes, it's not often, but sometimes I want to be a good pastor and help you. All right? And so I made you a cheat sheet. Everybody got this? 
We had them passed out. If you don't have one, we can get you one later. Just look on your neighbor. I got a little cheat sheet. It says Justin Justifier, my Romans 12, 13, 14, and 15 cheat sheet. All right? There are going to be several times, several times throughout the course of the next several weeks, all right, as we look at chapter 12, and then chapter 13, and then chapter 14, and then chapter 15. There's going to be several times throughout the next several weeks of Paul's letter where Paul's going to tell you to do something that it's going to feel like it's entirely upside down from the wisdom of this world. It's going to feel like it's a complete backwards way of looking at reality. And you'll be happy to hear that you're not crazy because it absolutely 100% is. It 100% is, and that's exactly why Paul commands it of you. And so here's what I want you to do. Every time we get to one of these little moments where you're like, I don't know, Stephen, that I don't know if that computes. All right? I don't know if that's how we ought to live. I, I don't know if that's going to get me very far in this place. I don't think I can think that way. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to grab your little cheat sheet and remind yourself of some things. Right? I want you to remind the, yourself of some things. These overarching themes. It says this. Because Jesus is the king who both saved me and reigns eternally in the heavens, I should think less of myself Think more of others and play the longer kingdom of God game. All right? Lock those three things down. You can read the end of Romans correctly. I should think less of myself, whether, whether for good or for ill. Whether we're talking about you know, you're feeling awesome right now or you're feeling like you're in the garbage can right now. No matter where you're at in that spectrum, just think less of yourself. Right? Think more of others, whether we're talking about brothers and sisters in Christ that you've been called, commanded to serve, or we're talking about the non-Christian that you've been commanded to try to win for Jesus. No matter who we're talking about there, think more of others. And then thirdly, play the longer kingdom of God game. Consider, think, live, act in such a way that there is an eternally more lucrative prize on the table for you. So every time you get to one of these little moments, whether chapter 12, chapter 13, chapter 14, chapter 15, this is the key. We forget these three truths. Guys, I promise you, best case scenario is that we misread Romans. Best case scenario. What's more likely to happen is that we take Romans in a terrible direction. So come back to your cheat sheet. You ready to apply it? Well, we're going to anyways. Verse 3. <laughs> Chapter 12, verse 3. Paul says this, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So does anybody in the room really want to argue with the idea that we live in a culture that's obsessed with self-esteem? Right? I, I, I can saw that branch off for you if you want to live on it. Like, and don't mishear me, like self-esteem is good. We want people to have self-esteem. We teach that to our kids, all of these kinds of things. Self-esteem is good. It's not intrinsically bad, but haven't we all been in situation after situation after situation where we've seen somebody's feelings about something trump or override what's actually true? How do you feel in that moment? <laughs> Does that frustrate you? I think it needs to frustrate you. Paul says, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. The, the Greek here it carries the tone of an improper accounting. 
an improper accounting of yourself. There's, there's the correct level of counting, there's the, the proper level, and then there's you. What, no matter if you want to call it confidence or, or arrogance or self-esteem, doesn't matter. It's just not a good look, right? It's an improper accounting. He says, instead, count yourself with a sober judgment. A sober judgment. He's, he's not talking, though, about a cold list of skills versus insufficiencies. You're not data from Star Trek. He's talking about living with an honest understanding of who you are spiritually. Of who you are spiritually. Of your, of your desperate need for a Savior. Of your desperate and constant fight against your indwelling sin. And yes, even the good things that you bring to the table for others. A sober judgment. So how do we pursue that, right? Like how can we have a sober judgment of ourselves? How can we, how can we have an, an unenebriated and uninfluenced look at who we actually are? Anybody think that our God's big enough and smart enough and awesome enough to give you the tool for that and lay it right in your laps? <laughs> Me too. <laughs> look, what does verse 4 say? For as in one body, we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. So who's, talk, who's Paul talking about here? He's talking about the church, right? He's talking about the church, the local, visible group of Jesus followers called the church. Paul uses a picture here that he uses in another place, that, uh, another letter he wrote in uh, 1 Corinthians. He tells the church at Corinth there that they are members of one body, that they are a body made up of many members. And he tells them that each member needs each other and that together they make up one healthy body. Not a collection of independent parts that's a thing over here, but a unified single organism. And so here, Paul says the same stuff. He uses the same imagery, right? And that we are individually members of one another. The body needs each member in order to be a healthy body. But it's also true that each member needs the body in order to be a healthy member. Both of those things are true. And if it doesn't sound true to your head, I, I, I need to press this morning, right? And so if you're, if you're somebody on the fringe with a pastoral love for you this morning, I want to press, right? Uh, yes, the body needs you. It hurts without you, but I'll just lay all the cards on the table here. You actually need the body more than the body needs you. I'll say that again because I know it sounds foreign in our culture. You need the body more than the body needs you. I know how that sounds to our culture, but dissonance doesn't make something untrue. Dissonance means that our culture has trained us to think in a way that's unbiblical. Let me illustrate what I mean. Think of a foot. Normal foot. Unless it's hurt and you don't really think about it. Just a normal, everyday, don't give it much thought foot. If someone were to walk in this door this morning without a foot, they probably wouldn't walk. But if somebody were coming this morning without a foot, right? You'd have some questions, <laughs> right? Best case scenario, we're, we're thinking of a story with a silver lining somewhere. There's lots of different reasons to not have a foot. Maybe it's, maybe it's a tragic accident. Maybe it's an act of heroism. Maybe it's just the result of a really dumb idea, right? Maybe they were just born without a foot. All reasonable 
ways of not having a foot. But you're looking for a silver lining in that story. Yes, the body is different. And don't we celebrate? Like, don't we celebrate when, when that person has the resolve to continue with life as normal, whatever that story is? Life is harder for them in a lot of ways. The body hurts, the body is slowed down, but, but the rest of the body presses on to the best of its ability, right? That's, that's what a, a body that's missing a limb does, and we rightly celebrate those stories whenever we see them. But if you flip the, the characters of the story, the pieces of the story on its head and go the other direction, we're talking about an entirely different story, right? You're walking down the sidewalk, and then all of a sudden you see a foot. You looking for a silver lining in that story? Hopefully you're calling the cops, right? The foot's not pressing on to the best of its ability. The foot is actively decomposing. It is lifeless. It's been disconnected from the life of the body. And, and in that moment, you're, yeah, probably a, a little freaked out by seeing a foot there. But what you're really, really hoping is that the body that it once was connected to is okay. Right? That's a tragic accident, and you're wondering where the other part is. If you're on the fringe here, hear me clearly. The body needs you. Needs you. The body hurts without you. It handicaps the body when you are not here. But you need the body more than the body needs you. You do, and, and there are two reasons why. In this text, at least. Like, there's two reasons in this text. We could point to others, but in this text, there are two reasons that true church community is something that you absolutely desperately need. And I'll, I'll double down a little bit in, on the word true there. Like, I think we've all been in situations, probably, I know I have, where community was something that, that was talked about and celebrated and given lip service to, but never actually chased after. I'm not, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about true Christian community as God has designed it and healthy churches are trying their best to chase after it. And so there are two things in this text that true church community does for you. The first one is that it prevents you from hiding your crazy bits. You know those unattractive parts of you and in your heart and in your character that you'd really prefer not to let others know about? Am, am I the only one that has those? Oh, just me? Okay. You, you can't hide that stuff for very long in a healthy church. You can't. It'll bleed out of you. And I know hearing that, I mean, like, aren't you thinking, well, sign me up, pastor. I want to get me some more community. Like, like that's exactly what I'm looking for. I, I, I get it. It's upside down from the wisdom of this world. I, I know. Remember our cheat sheet? All that see and think and value stuff that we talked about last week? That whole life worship response of being transformed rather than conformed, I think you'll find that it lands in some pretty interesting and God-glorifying places sometimes. By God's grace, the mirror of biblical community creates a sober estimation of ourselves. We can't escape it. 
It creates a sober estimation of, of ourselves. That, that honest, unenebriated assessment of just how desperately we need a Savior, of just how hard we need to still keep fighting our sin. You can't avoid it when you're in real community. It's in your face. You gotta deal with it. You, me, everybody else in here, we need the dysfunctional family of the church to help us see our faults. We need it. And thereby create opportunities for humility and repentance. And I know that that can seem painful from the outside looking in. I'll, I'll just be honest with you, it's not any less painful on the inside. It's hard sometimes. It's hard sometimes, but, but otherworldly transformation often requires otherworldly tactics. And God shows his goodness to you by giving you a bunch of losers just like you to, to shape you and sand you and mold you into looking more and more and more like himself. That's one of the reasons God gave us the church. And so a failure to press in here, it, it, like it hurts the body, but listen, it also robs you of an incredibly valuable tool that God intended for your growth. Like, can, can we all just be honest and say that that's a really dumb way to try to walk as a Christian? It's not going to go well. You need the body, so press in. But there's a second thing that true community does for you. Secondly, it provides a God-ordained platform to serve others as God has created us. Look at the next verse, verse 6. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So Paul lists off some spiritual gifts here, right? And if you don't have much of a church background, spiritual gifts are, are skills and, and aptitudes, I guess you could say, that the Holy Spirit has given to each one of his people for service in the church. And, and so lists like this one in, in uh, Romans 12 and other lists uh, scattered around in uh, different places in the Bible, a couple other places. Um, and so uh, and lists like this one lead us to believe that every single follower of Jesus has a spiritual gift. We don't always know what that looks like yet, but every single one does. And so if you're a Christian, this would seem to indicate that you have been given a Holy and Spirit-given gift for the church. And so as Christian subculture often goes, everybody wants to run to the, here to this list or to the list that's in 1 Corinthians 12 or to the list that's in Ephesians 4 and try to figure out which, their, which gift is theirs. <laughs> and so a lot of people in here myself included, have taken numerous assessments over the years to tell us what those gifts are, right? We take little tests. You can even go online right now. You could Google it right now and probably find an endless list of online spiritual gift assessments. And some of them are good and some of them are kind of wonky. Uh, and so like, like any kind of BuzzFeed style uh, like personality test you've ever come across, I'm sure you'll be a thousand percent honest with all your answers. Instead of like answering in a way that sounds like what you want to be, you would never do that, right? And it spits out a little psychological profile for you. 
and holds it up to, to these three lists. And then now we know what our spiritual gift is and how we can serve the church, right? 20 questions later, 100 questions later, doesn't matter, we got it. There's no good Bible student, though, that, that thinks that these three lists are the only spiritual gifts. We don't think it's exhaustive. Paul wrote all three lists. We, we, don't, we don't think that he's trying to, to articulate every single one of the spiritual gifts, but they're the lists that we have, and so they're the lists that we use. And so now we know, we know how we can serve the church. But I think that this reality actually tells us something incredibly important about the condition of our hearts. Because not a single one of those lists, here, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, not a single one of those texts are speaking primarily about the gifts they list. Not a one. They, in fact, they, they are all, all three of them, actively working to undo some stuff that, that comes with, with holding those gifts. They're, they're actively trying to undo the pride and the ego that often comes with being the bearer of those gifts. And so Paul lists gifts, but that listing them is not what's in view here. He's doing something else. Let me explain what I mean. In, in 1 Corinthians 12, the main one that people point to, Paul, uh, his main point there is to show that holding one gift does not make you better than holding a different gift. That was a problem in the Corinthian church. They kind of had this weird hierarchical structure that if you had this gift, you were important. If you had this gift, you were slightly less important. All right? And so Paul undoes that. He writes to them to, to show them that, that whatever false hierarchy they had, their, their call instead was to humble themselves and to serve for the good of the larger body. That's the tone in, in 1 Corinthians 12. In Ephesians 4, the second of the three lists, uh, Paul talks about spiritual gifts that are often associated with offices in the church, uh, like, off, uh, like apostles or uh, evangelists, pastors, teachers, those kind of things. But he does so to point out that those gifts are given and the offices themselves exist for the purpose of serving the church. In other words, church leaders don't lead from the top. Healthy church leaders lead from the bottom. That's his point in Ephesians 4. And then here in Romans 12, Paul doesn't, he doesn't simply name some spiritual gifts so he can expand the catalog for the Romans to choose from. He's fleshing out a whole life sacrifice of worship. It's a worship that's reasonable and logical and spiritual and true. And it's also a worship that must, and, and I really believe that the answer is must. It's a worship that must take place within the context of a local church body. Why? Because he's made each one of us a single piece in a much larger puzzle. Puzzle pieces standing by themselves, they don't accomplish much. In fact, you might throw it away. You are one part of a larger body. He has equipped you and I and everybody else to serve the church in a distinct way that well, others could never, ever even begin to bring to the table. It can't be replaced. To go back to our weird foot illustration from a moment ago, if we lopped off a healthy hand, try to use it as a foot, be weird. If we really desperately needed a foot instead of a hand, it, we might justify it in our heads, but that's debatable, that the body's actually better off. You can't just replace it that way. You may get something that's close, approximate in some kinds of ways and in some kind of tasks, but the body's never going to be whole. 
The foot is a unique body part, and no other body part could ever truly replace it. Like, yes, there's, there's more than one foot in a healthy body, but like, you could never replace it with a hand or an ear or a mouth or a nose. That'd be ridiculous, and it wouldn't work. God has created you in such a way, gifted you, wired you, etc., to serve here in an incredibly unique way. And it's within the context of the local church that those things can be discovered and nurtured and put into practice. Whatever gift God has given you, whatever role he's currently placed you in, the real question is not, which gift do I have? The real question is, what am I doing with the gift I'm seeing in front of me? What am I doing with it? Whatever it is, what am I doing with the gift that God has given me? And and he's given us good tools to answer the other lesser questions, but what are you doing with the gift? Are you serving according to the grace that has been given to you? Because the unmistakable truth in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12 and Ephesians 4 is that that gift was never given to you for it to be sat on. That's what Paul is aiming at. Use it. The church is handicapped without it. A part of your whole life response of worship is to use it in a way that serves humbly. So jump in. Jump in. Sit down with your deacons. Sit down with your small group leaders. Sit down with me. All great options. But let's figure out how God has especially equipped you and called you. And then we'll find some God-glorifying ways to put that into action here. That's what a healthy church is. And and according to the list in Ephesians 4, it's the the responsibility of my gifting and my role to find ways to help you serve. To help you act on that. But it also leads us to a different question. How do these things play out in a real world? Like, Like everyday interactions with people. Like using your gifts... We can talk about it in the vague concept. We can talk about using your gifts, and it sounds really cool. And we can, we can say that God has equipped you and, and, and done all these things, and, and God has blessed you and done all these things for you so that you can serve, but we haven't actually put any meat on the bones yet. And what about when you walk out the door here? I mean, do we shut it down for the next six days? What does my living sacrifice, whole life response of worship look like there? Well, Paul's actually ready to guide us through it. But you're going to need to hold on tight and keep one eye on your cheat sheet because he's about to just shoot rapid fire here. Buckle up. Verse 9. Let love be genuine. We could say that a different way. Let love be without hypocrisy. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful or lazy in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Guys, there are 13 commands in that short little paragraph. You want me to talk about them all? (laughs) Five verses, 13 commands. Guys, Paul picked up his little apostolic machine gun. He ain't scared to use it. He just starts shooting there. He starts out by saying that, that our love ought to be genuine. In other words, that we don't just simply give it lip service around here. 
It's genuine. Others might celebrate love, claim to love, chase after love, but it's the one who diligently presses in when everybody else bails that Paul's talking about here. That's the kind of love he, he wants to celebrate and call us to. Biblical love is no veneer. It's the one that's hanging around when everything else fades away. It hates what is evil and it clings desperately to what is good. And anything less is a sad little knockoff. Biblical love stands on its head to outdo its neighbor in showing honor. It's never lazy, but rather fervent to serve the Lord by serving others. Stephen, that sounds really tiring. In fact, this sounds exhausting. Nor, nor does it sound like it's going to get me very far in this world. I mean, that's, that's not the best way to, to like live my life. I, I've got some plans, you know. I, I've got some ideas for myself. And, and that way of living, it's not going to get me there. It's not going to help me go where I want to go. Yeah, you're right. It probably won't. It probably won't. So this is where we need our cheat sheet, right? Because of what Jesus has done for us, our call is to look less at ourselves and to think more of others and to play the bigger kingdom of God game. And listen, when, when we do that, when we respond to, to Jesus in the way he deserves and is calling us to, when we begin to place our hope in that kingdom to come rather than this one, you will begin to start rejoicing in it too. It's not something that you just need to buckle down and discipline yourself. You'll actually start to crave it. Want to see it experience it yourself, and despite the patience that's required to wait out tribulation you're in. And it will begin to feel quite natural to be driven to our knees in prayer. And we will find ourselves being glad to share in meeting the needs of others, brothers and sisters in Christ, by living open-handedly. It won't even be something we have to think about anymore. It'll be second nature. A living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, is quite upside down from the wisdom of this world. Quite. Always has been, it always will be, and I get the impression that God clearly wants it to be so. But Paul's not done. He loads up for round two. Verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty. That's a, that's a false pride. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. Uh, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So there's another 12 commands in six verses this time instead of five. Paul's slowing down. Getting old like Tom Brady. <laughs> Used to be the goat, but he's lost his step, guys. I'm just saying. Thought I'd give a cultural relevant illustration. Hate Hulu. <laughs> Stupid Hulu commercial. Paul says, bless those who persecute you. 
bless them. And, and you'd like to call him crazy, but some of you know your Bibles well enough to know that Paul's just quoting Jesus there. So you're not sure what to think, right? Because you don't, you don't get to argue with Jesus, but like, are they paying attention to how the world really works? And that's the kind of stuff that'll get you walked all over in this world. Bless those who persecute you. Really? Uh, anybody want to volunteer to, to pull Paul and Jesus to the side and have a little talking with them? Get down in their face. Hey, guys, I love you. I know you mean good, but I don't think you're thinking this through. You got to stand up for yourself, man. Stand, stand tall. Assert yourself. You can do this. I'm rooting for you. Anybody want that job? Bless those who persecute you. That's exactly the kind of talk that'll get you walked all over in this world. It'll get you taken advantage of all the time. And I'm with you, man. Like, like, like think through this. I, I, I'm the guy who sits down and thinks about this kind of stuff. If all we have is our 80 to 100 years, then I would be the very first person in line to tell the world that that is the dumbest advice I've ever heard. Absolute nonsense. When you live in a world that does everything in its power to get ahead of the next guy, don't you know it's dog-eat-dog dog out there? If all we have is our 80 to 100 years, that is stupid advice. Absolute trash. Which is probably why we need our cheat sheet. The command to bless our persecutors. It can only make sense. It can only make sense if we are playing for a prize that comes after our 80 to 100 years. Otherwise, it doesn't make any sense at all. It, it also, at the very same time, it also has to bank on the promise that you're not the one responsible for doling out vengeance and justice. He who is perfectly just will not fail to give to all exactly what they deserve. And so in light of what Jesus has done, we refuse to exalt ourselves and we do everything in our power to live peaceably with all and, and we are freed. Oh guys, we are freed to shut down what we're working on and instead celebrate or cry with others in order to serve them. You're not free to do that if you're fighting for you. The second you stop fighting for you, it opens the door for some things because what, what Jesus has done for us, our, our whole life response of worship is shaped more by the character of Jesus being born in us than the external circumstances going on around us. Or to quote Paul from last week, we are being transformed rather than conformed. And so as you look more and more like Jesus on the inside, we also begin to look a whole lot like him on the outside. It'll come out of you. But here's what's really cool. Really cool. Because we don't simply begin to look like him in the negative sense. In the not doing the things that Jesus doesn't do sense. We also begin to take his shape in the positive sense too. What do I mean by that? Living in an others-focused, investing in the kingdom to come kind of way isn't merely passive, it's also active. Look at verse 20. 
To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, what? Feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with what? So again, this command doesn't make any sense at all in the world that we live in. And I can feel all the yeah buts rising up in me too. It doesn't make any sense. But then I remember what Jesus did for his enemy and all my excuses had their legs swept out from under him. Right? No one is shocked that people find it hard to serve their enemy. Like that, that's, that's how hearts work. That's, that's the way life goes, Right? Nobody in this room thinks it would be easy to feed or give drink or serve their enemy in any way. I mean, they're the bad guy, right? Don't you know what they've done? Let me tell you the story of what they've done. They're the one that deserves justice. They're the one that deserves what's coming to them. Like, you want me to serve them? Are you serious? Earlier in this letter in chapter 5, Paul even raises the stakes on this little logical problem that we have. He points to, to other people's struggle to sacrifice for even people they like. And he takes the argument all the way to its end by talking about laying down your life, actually dying for the sake of somebody else. And he says, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. And his point is that the cost of that kind of sacrifice is far too high, far too high for someone that you merely like or even kind of like, or even too high for someone you kind of respect. We talked about this several months ago when we were in chapter 5, but for many of us, our hero mentality kicks in in that moment, and we desperately want Paul to ask the next question. Okay, go ahead and ask me if I'd lay down my life for those I'd love, right? Of course we'd make that decision. We've got this noble idea in our head that we'd proudly and confidently lay our lives down. Maybe you're that way. I like to pretend that way. I don't know. But we desperately want Paul to ask that next, next, that next question. Come on, Paul. Ask me if I would be willing to lay down my life for those I love. But Paul doesn't go that way at all because that doesn't cost us anything. Paul instead goes the other direction. He doesn't ask what we do for people we love. He goes the other direction and points to what Jesus has done for those who rightly deserved his wrath. Chapter 5, he calls us his enemies. And in Romans 5, 8, Paul says that God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Slightly higher cost than giving him some food and water. Just a little. Church, I, I know that the command to love our enemies is hard. I, I, I get that. I, I know that it sounds like the exact opposite of the wisdom that this world offers up. I know that it might very well blow up in our faces. I'm not naive. But there has never been one single command from the mouth of God that did not first come rooted in his own good character. Not one. We do not love our enemy because it's easy. And we don't love our enemy because it's a good pathway to success in this world. And we don't even love our enemy because we think that that'll turn them around and we'll be friends after that. We love our enemy because Jesus first loved us when we were his. 
our natural and reasonable and logical and spiritual response to the massive thing that Jesus has done for us is to offer our whole selves as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. And, and as we refuse to be conformed to the pattern of this, of this world and when we are instead transformed by the renewal of our minds, we will look more and more day after day like our Savior both inside and outside. One link in the chain after the next, after the next, after the next. When we begin to see and think and value things the way that he does, we will begin to act a little more like he does. And in that moment, two incredibly beautiful, wonderful things happen. One is that people will get a taste of our good God and two, God will receive the glory for it forever. That's a good day. Despite whatever it might cost us in our 80 to 100 years, that's a good day. So what do we do with this stuff, right? How do we respond to, to God's word this morning? If, if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus yet, I'm, I'm glad you're here today. You can respond to God's word by meeting Jesus. You, you've heard that, that he came and lived a, a sinless life that you're incapable of living. And you heard that he died on the cross to make payment for, our, for your sins. But hear now that he calls on you to respond to him in faith. That's the call. You trust in his work on your behalf, on your behalf and be clothed in his righteousness rather than your own. You can do that this morning. In a moment, I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. That's a time for you to act on that response. It's a time that you can say yes to his call. And so I'll be down front here if you'd like somebody to walk you through what that looks like. If you're here this morning and you're already a follower of Jesus, your response is to press into God this morning, right? We, we say that every week, but it's true every week. You do that by repenting of sin and leaning into what he has revealed about himself in Romans 12. He hasn't left you to simply figure out the Christian walk on your own. Last week, he's, he started with the macro view, and now he's dialing it in and giving us the micro view. He, he's, he's covering all the bases here. Isn't he good to us? What about your daily interactions rubs up the hardest against that rapid-fire list of commands? Or to ask the question we asked earlier, what, what are you doing with the spiritual gift God gave you? What are you doing with it? Those are ways you can respond to God this morning. But there's a third way, another way that you can respond to God's word this morning. It's a special way. Follower of Jesus, you can, you can respond by coming and receiving the elements of the Lord's Supper this morning. Let me explain while our deacons come forward to serve. On the night that Jesus was arrested, he gathered his followers uh, for a Passover meal. Right, he wanted to celebrate with them, but instead of celebrating the normal way, Jesus broke with tradition. He pointed to, to what he was doing for them instead of what had been done long ago. And he, he picked up the bread, and, he, and everybody's kind of watching him, and he, and he breaks the bread in front of him. And he says, this is my body, which is broken for you. Hours after he said that, his body was ripped to shreds. It was torn for you. We said earlier that did, Jesus didn't deserve to die. He had no sin. So that, that means that he intentionally laid his life down for the sake of paying the debt of sin that you owe. 
He went to the cross willingly and on purpose. Nobody took his life. He laid it down of his own accord. Jesus then picked up the cup of wine and said, this is my blood, the blood of the new covenant. Jesus' blood was literally spilled to purchase your forgiveness and right standing before God. A single sacrifice for all, Hebrews tells us. And so as a church family and with any believing guests that we've got joining us today, like, we're going to celebrate that together. We're going to celebrate that together. I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. Take a moment to repent of sin and then come when you are ready. Take a moment to understand your spiritual state of your desperate need for a Savior, of your constant daily fight against sin and the desperate need for the cross. Then, come. If you're not a Christian, I, I love you, but this, these elements aren't for you. And because they're magical or, you know, secretive or anything like that, it's, it's crackers and juice. But for those of us who are followers of Jesus, it's representative of something so much more than that. It's a reminder, a picture of what he has done for us on the cross. And so, that even when, when we were dead in our trespasses and sin, he made us alive again. By grace, you have been saved. And so I'm going to pray, and we're going to sing. That'll be a time for all of us to respond in these myriad of ways. I know it's complicated, but I'm, God's big enough. We can do this, right? And so... When you're ready, you come down these aisles, receive the elements, and go around that way back to your chairs. Does that make sense? Make it easy. We'll have some leaders down front here to talk and pray with you if that would serve you in some way. If you need to respond in some kind of way, I'll be down front, but let's all respond to his word this morning. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for Romans 12 massive truths about the church and dozens of many truths about how we ought to live. God, we pray that you take your word and change us by it this morning. It would not be simply we sat and heard, but something that we have a whole life response to. Father, I know that these words are hard to hear. They're hard to stomach in a world that thinks that the opposite is the way you ought to live. God, we, we need your strength to walk in these ways. We need you to change our hearts and change the way we see and, and change what we value and pursue in this world so that we can actually live consistently with who you called us to be. But I don't think you've left us to just figure that out. I think you've given us your spirit to walk with us in these moments and so you're here calling us to see with eternal eyes Father for those in here who don't know you yet would you make yourself known to them in this moment would you open eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to know would you save people today and God as we as we respond with the picture of the Lord's Supper, would you, would you remind us in this picture that you are good and that you came to die because of our sin. God, we can't clean ourselves up to come to you. We need you to clean us. 
We need you to sanctify us and declare us holy. We have nothing to offer that you need or even want, but you are good and you are doing a mighty thing. And so as we celebrate with song, as we celebrate with picture, help us respond well. In your name we pray.